Bible reading is from James chapter 1, verses 1 to 8. Verse 1, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes recorded among the nations, greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt, because he who doubts is like the, a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all he does. This is the word of God. Terima kasih, Yani. Pembaca itu tempat sekali. It's good to be back uh, here with you uh, this morning. Uh, you mustn't listen to everything that your uh, minister says. You listen to a lot of it, but not everything. I think it was Winston Churchill who once said someone was guilty of terminological inexactitudes. And uh, certainly when he came to describing myself and Carol, uh, I felt that that was what was being passed on to you this morning. Uh, we were members here in uh, 1993 through to 1997, I think it was, and it's good to see still some familiar faces uh, here in the congregation this morning. Well, we're looking, uh, or I'd like to look at you, uh, with you uh, from the section that Yanni read uh, from chapter 1 uh, in James. Uh, one of the key themes of the letter, to ja uh, letter of James is the uh, topic of prayer. Uh, he deals with it uh, four out of every five chapters, and when he touches on it, he does so in a special way, and uh, I've been looking at this in my own study, and this is uh, the first of uh, these studies, and we're looking this morning then at verses five to eight, uh, if you want to follow uh, in the church Bibles. Uh, before we do so, uh, let me just uh, commit our time to God in prayer. Let's pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. I wonder in which area of your life you would consider uh, most in need of attention. Uh, in what area of your Christian life do you feel most uh, deficient and I suppose if you're like myself, you think, well, almost every part of my life is not what it should be. Um, but which area do you think is most in need of attention? Uh, it may be that you feel that uh, in terms of your walk with, Lord, uh, with the Lord, your holiness, uh, that that needs uh, some work on. Just be, because of the ease in which we uh, succumb to temptation and fall into sin. Or it might be in the area of self-discipline uh, that we too often fritter away our time. You know, too much uh, screen time, uh, too much um, 
Facebook time, uh, too much texting uh, friends or engaging in uh, trivial matters uh, of conversation with them. Or it might be a lack of impatient, impatience, uh, showing our frustrations with a flash of temper or a heated word. In our passage this morning, verse 5, uh, James puts at the top of his list uh, that is lacking uh, in relation to what he wants to talk about uh, is wisdom. He says there in verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God. And I don't think many of us would uh, own up to being foolish. Uh, we might concede there have been times in our life when we uh, didn't say or do the right things. Uh, perhaps a you know, regretting the hurt that we may have caused another by a silly throwaway comment. But we would argue that these are not a settled trait of our character, but rather lapses of judgment on our part. And if challenged, we might want to defend ourselves vigorously and say, well, no one's perfect. In fact, James says that in chapter 3, in verse 2. Uh, we all make many mistakes. Uh, so who are you to accuse me? Uh, you're just as guilty uh, as I am. And yet when we come to pick up this letter and start to read it for ourselves, um, James seems to imply that folly is more of a problem than we care to admit. And that this folly is deeply inbred in us. And <clears throat> that in certain circumstances, uh, foolish words and actions come out, uh, in the, especially in the context of what he talks about in verse 2 in times of trials. So I want to begin by looking at uh, this uh, prayer for wisdom uh, in its context. I'm starting really halfway through the first paragraph. Uh, just setting, first of all, verses 2 to 4 as the prelude to what he wants to say about prayer and then looking uh, in more detail at what he says about praying for wisdom in verses 5 to 8. James begins his letter by considering uh, the importance of Christian maturity. Uh, it's there in verse 4. He says, um, Perseverance must finish its work so that you might be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Um, when God comes to the believer and, and says to the believer, you know, I love you and I've got a wonderful uh, plan for your life. And my plan for your life is going to be trials. Uh, and my intention is through these trials, to create in you a robust Christian character. My plan is that through these trials, uh, you will become mature and complete, not lacking in anything. In other words, God uh, is at work in us to develop a Christian character. When Jesus says to you, you know, follow me, he doesn't mean just clicking the like button on, your fa on his Facebook page. Uh, his intention goes, he's far more radical than that. Uh, he wants to work in us and to transform our lives more and more into his own image. And what James is saying here, that these God-ordained trials are intended to lead us to a God-ordained outcome, which is Christian maturity, uh, to be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. If you've got a, a different version there, you might read uh, that to be perfect and complete, not lacking in anything. And so James is holding out here the possibility of becoming uh, a fully developed Christian. 
what he's telling is is that there is a kind of perfection obtainable in this life. Uh, Not the perfection of sinlessness, because he goes on to say that's impossible in chapter 3, and also the, the testimony of the rest of Scripture would tell us that that is unattainable. But what he does say is that there is a perfection related to maturity. Uh, There is such a thing as a well-rounded Christian character. Uh, It is possible to reach a stage in your Christian life where hearing is always followed by doing, where faith is always accompanied by works, where the tongue is used for blessing and not for cursing, where uh, patience is a settled response to the vagaries of life. This is the kind of perfection that James is holding out as possible in this life. And what this maturity is, and how we get to it, is then the subject of these verses that I want to look at you, with you, uh, in verses 5 to 8. And there is a, a connection between what he started off in his letter and what he goes on to talk about in terms of praying for wisdom. Um, I've read a lot of books in, on the letter uh, of James and many scholars uh, a while back used to complain that the letter of James is, is disconnected. He moves from one topic to another without any visible connections. It's like having a, uh, I don't know, a bowl full of pearls but there's no, there's no string upon which to thread these pearls and make a beautiful necklace. It's all disjointed. And for that reason they've compared this letter to the book of Proverbs in the Old Testament uh, where you get proverb after proverb after proverb where sometimes it's hard to work out whether there is any connection at all. And so these scholars have classified James uh, as the same kind of literature as the book of Proverbs. They've classified it as uh, wisdom literature. And what has been overlooked uh, by them and until fairly recently is, however, there are subtle connections that James makes a connection uh, perhaps in terms of the topic or a connection in terms of uh, what are sometimes called hook words or link words. And we've got an example of that uh, between verses 4 and verse 5. Because verse 4 finishes uh, on one word and then James picks up that same word in verse 5 to make the connection. And that word is the word lack. At the end of verse 4 he says, not lacking anything... And then he uses the same word again, verse 5, if any of you lacks. So there's an intimate connection between this uh, Christian maturity and how it's obtained with praying for wisdom, which is what he's talking about in verses 5 to 8. In other words, uh, James is saying that when you go through trials of many kinds, the one thing you need is wisdom. And that is the one thing you lack. And the presence or absence of wisdom uh, is the critical factor that makes all the difference as to whether you actually make progress in your Christian life uh, or go the other way, you you regress in your Christian life. When God ordains trials for you, it is for the express intent of leading you forward and onwards to this goal of Christian maturity. We may not like trials, but they're part and parcel of the Christian life. And the plain truth of the matter is that when life is good, when there are no storm clouds on the horizon, when we're having lots of fun, when we've got our health and everything else, we're too busy enjoying ourselves to ask the deeper questions, the more important questions of life. Trials are 
God's appointed way to help us think about the things that are really important in life, that are vital to learn. Uh, Robert Hamilton put this truth uh, in a poem. He said this, I walked, with, uh, I walked a mile with pleasure, she chatted all the way, but left me none the wiser for all she had to say. I walked a mile with sorrow, and ne'er a word said she, but oh the things I learned from her when sorrow walked with me. So I want to look at the verses 5 to 8 under three headings. Uh, first of all, to look at our need in verse, first part of verse 5. Our need is that of wisdom. Um, and then in the second part of verse uh, 5, God's offer, which is wisdom through prayer, through asking. And then to look at our response in verses 6 through to 8, um, where there's a tension between asking in faith and asking uh, in terms of what James calls in verse 8, uh, having a, a double mind on the issue. So first of all, thinking about what we lack, what we need, which is wisdom. And I think, if you're like me, there's one book of the Bible that immediately comes to mind when we think of this topic of wisdom. And it's that book that the first reading was from this morning, uh, the book of Proverbs. Uh, most of those Proverbs were composed by one of the ancient kings of Israel, a man by the name of Solomon, the son of David. And in 1 Kings 4, uh, the Bible tells us he wrote 3,000 uh, Proverbs. And he was certainly known for his wisdom, not just in his own country, uh, but far and wide. In fact, there was one occasion uh, when a lady called the Queen of Sheba, which is probably modern-day Yemen, uh, came to hear his wisdom. And after she, after she conversed with King Solomon, she said this, she said, the report that I heard in my own country about your achievements and your wisdom is true. But I did not believe these things until I came and saw with my own eyes. Indeed, not even a half was told to me. In wisdom and wealth, you have far exceeded the report that I heard. And in that book of Proverbs, in the first, well, first nine chapters, which is a sustained treatise on wisdom, uh, we read from chapter 3, uh, which talks about the value and the blessedness of obtaining God's wisdom. Uh, Solomon writes there, she is more profitable than silver, yields better returns than gold. You remember King Solomon's prayer when he was a young man and recently ascended to the throne of Israel. He had a dream. And in the dream, God said to him, you know, ask of me anything that you wish and I will give it to you. And Solomon's response is this. He says, he said to the Lord, give your servant a wise and discerning heart. And God was pleased with his prayer for wisdom. But what is wisdom? Well, I want to suggest that wisdom is practical godliness. Uh, wisdom is when the Spirit of God takes the Word of God and applies it to the man or woman of God to live the life that God desires. It's the ability to take the Word of God and apply it to the problems, uh, the issues, our relationships, the choices, the values that we need to live each and every day. And we need this wisdom. We need it as parents, young parents, in order to set 
a good example for our children and to raise them in a secure and loving home. We need it in home life in order to rightly relate to one another so that home is really a home and not a kind of a loose confederacy of warring tribes. Uh, we need it in marriage uh, for men to learn to love their wives sacrificially as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. We need wisdom when we're young, particularly in our teenage years. Uh, the book of Proverbs should be mandatory study for all church youth groups because it's the one book of the Bible that was written for young people. And if you look at the book of Proverbs, there are two sets of Proverbs that encourage young people uh, to make wise choices, first of all, in the areas of choosing good friends, friends that will help you. And the second set of Proverbs uh, relates to keeping yourself free from sexual immorality. We need wisdom in teenage years when peer pressures are placed upon us. We need it in middle age. You know, uh, I see so many families going out with young children. I've got four children, they're all married, they've all got children. Uh, they walk around like zombies because they're always tired, you know, they never get a full night's sleep. Um, I didn't last night because we had three of the grandchildren staying with us and of course one was up sick and all, all of that. But you know, you need wisdom in middle age, in the midst of raising a family, to know how to manage the competing pressures for your time, pressures of home, of church, of work, and to know where to set your priorities. And we need wisdom in old age, like me, uh, to know how to rest in God's presence and to prepare ourselves for that great change which will bring us into his immediate presence. To trust him in declining health. To trust him in increasing bodily wisdom. And we need wisdom too in times of trial. Because when we're under pressure. Uh, when we feel constrained and confined by uh, adverse circumstances. Uh, and when we're under stress we don't think straight. We don't act wisely. And we're prone to do and to say things that we later regret. Now, wisdom is not the same as knowledge. We live in an age of knowledge. The internet has given uh, each of us access to a vast store of knowledge, but there is an important difference between knowledge and wisdom because you can have a person who is very knowledgeable, might be knowledgeable in commerce or in business or in the arts or in medicine, uh, whatever it is, but in personal life, in personal relationships, they can behave very foolishly. Many are clever, but not many wise. Many are gifted, but they can act in foolish ways. And so you get highly educated people, intellectually bright, but ill-equipped to deal with life's deepest issues. And it comes out in uh, their personal lives. And according to the book of Proverbs, uh, this wisdom begins by rightly relating to the Lord. In, that, in those first nine chapters, the bookends of the chapters, there's a repeated verse uh, which you could almost think of as a summary verse for the book of Proverbs. And it says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And when we come to fear God, when we come to respect him, uh, we come to him with the awe 
that is due to his name. We begin to take his word seriously. We begin to submit our lives under the authority of his word. And we learn to trust him on a daily basis. And we're especially thankful that he sent his one and only son to die on a cross to take away the guilt and the power of our sins. And we also not only learn a lot about God, we learn a whole heap of stuff about ourselves and the state of our own hearts, that there is none righteous, no, not one. And so we begin humbly to admit our lack, our need of wisdom. This is the one thing that we need in times of trials. But we simply don't have the resources necessary to deal with life's pressures. So what are we going to do? Well, James recommends in the second part of verse 5 that he or she should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault and it will be given to him. We're to pray. Pray for this wisdom. It's there. It's available to help you onwards to Christian maturity. And James doesn't just tell us to pray. He gives us there four motivations uh, to help us uh, boldly come before the throne of grace and there find help in time of need. The first motivation, he says, is, that, is, is to be found in God's character. Um, <clears throat> he, says, uh, he says there, he should ask God who gives generous to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. Uh, the more exact translation, if you want to read Greek, don't listen to what Chris says. Uh, but uh, what James has done, he's taken a verb and he's made it an adjective. Actually, he describes God as the giving God to emphasize that this is part of God's character. You know, the Bible talks about God in all kinds of ways. He's a merciful God. He's a patient God. He's a holy God. But here, James describes him as a giving God. I was uh, reading about the life of Annie Flint. Uh, she lived last century. Uh, she was uh, orphaned very early on in life. In fact, her foster parents uh, also passed away. And for much of the last years of her life, she was confined to a wheelchair with uh, arthritis. And what was remarkable about her is one of the hymns that she wrote that found its way into uh, the old hymnals at least and she wrote this his love has no limits his grace has no measure for out of his infinite riches in Jesus he giveth and giveth and giveth again that's the God we deal with this morning he's a giving God and then the second encouragement to pray is to be found in the liberality of God he gives notice verse 5 to all uh, we often make distinctions, don't we, between those who we like to help and those who we don't, our friends, and those who we really don't like anyway. God makes no such distinctions. He gives to all. Uh, our Lord himself reminded us of, as of this in the Sermon on the Mount. He said uh, in Matthew 5, He makes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. He causes his rain to fall upon the just and the unjust. The liberality of God's love. Even, even to those who ignore him, even to those who reject him. And then the third encouragement here is God's generosity because God, he says, gives generously. You know, the Apostle Paul uh, writes in Ephesians 3, verse 20, that God is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. 
you think about what you might obtain from God, think again, because he can give far more abundantly. Sometimes we're tempted to think as God, of God as somebody who has to be, who's a bit mean and niggardly and has got to be pestered in prayer in order to wrest from him the things that we need for life. Not at all. Our God is a generous God. He is a spring of water that never runs dry. And then the last, <clears throat> the last encouragement is the graciousness of God. God gives without finding fault, says James. Uh, in other versions, uh, it's without reproach. Um, so when, you know, James tells us that when we come to God to ask for wisdom, uh, he doesn't reproach us for doing so, even though we might have, you know, messed up in the past. Uh, parents are very good at that. You know, children muck up once and we may let them off with that and muck up twice. We make sure they know they've really mucked up. You know, we bring out this long list of all the times when they've messed up in the past. Why don't you ever learn? We reproach them. We remind them of past failures. Does God do that when we come to him with all our past failures? <laughs> uh, not at all, says James. He certainly could do if he wanted, you know. He could, I mean, the list would just go on and on and on. Uh, but he gives without finding fault, without reproach. I wonder if we're persuaded in prayer that we come to a God like that, a giving God, a generous God, the liberality of his giving, and one who uh, is pleased to receive our prayer without reproach. Well, if we are, then we wouldn't have much difficulty, I think, in seeking wisdom. And then we come finally to this, uh, I wish I could finish there, but unfortunately the text goes on, verses 6 to 8. Uh, because, and this is a pattern that's going to repeat itself whenever James talks on prayer. He's a pastor, first and foremost. And uh, he talks about... Uh, something like uh, prayer in this context, prayer in trials, finding help in times of trial. But then he raises the pastoral issue that he's had to deal with, with his own congregation. And he's going to do that in chapter 3. He's going to do it again in chapter 4. In fact, the rest of the times. He raises a pastoral issue. And the pastoral issue in this instance is the issue of double-mindedness. And I just want you to notice the balance uh, he's talked about uh, asking God in verse 5, one verse uh, for wisdom, but then he spends three verses uh, talking about this pastoral difficulty. And I want you to remember the weight, where the weight of his teaching uh, sits. You know, if we haven't received wisdom, it's not because it isn't to be had. It's not because God is sparing in his giving. It's not because he's deaf to our pleas. It's not because we've messed up in the past more than most others. It's nothing to do with God's side of this relationship, human divine relationship that we give this name to called prayer. What James is saying is that there is a problem often on our side. This problem of double-mindedness. In other words, there is an art to prayer. Uh, two people can be praying and they can be praying the same prayer asking God for wisdom and outwardly speaking you can't tell really the difference in the prayer uh, one may be more fluent in prayer perhaps because they're better educated one may even sprinkle a few these and thous ostensibly to lend weight uh, 
to the prayer for wisdom. Uh, one may have been a Christian for a long time, but the other relatively short. None of these things matter. What James says is that what matters is the heart attitude. And so James describes here a heart that is full of doubts, or what he calls in verse 8, a double-minded heart. Faith in two minds. And as a result, even though outwardly there's not much difference, actually there is a big difference. One receives wisdom and makes progress in trial, the other doesn't and regresses in trial. One is blessed, the other is not. And to... um, drive home uh, this point that he's making, verse 6. James gives the first of many illustrations uh, from the world of nature. And uh, the illustration is about waves of the sea. Uh, And here, when I was thinking about it, I I think we've got a cultural problem. uh, Because when we think of waves, we think of surf uh, in Australia. Um, James was raised in Lower Galilee and spent some of his days uh, in the town of Capernaum uh, on the, by the Sea of Galilee. And the Sea of Galilee, and I've been there uh, quite a number of times, there is no surf. So the waves that he's thinking of uh, is not surf. There's no surf life rescue club uh, to be found uh, in Capernaum. Nobody surfs on the Sea of Galilee. What he's thinking about is the swell. Those are the kind of waves that he's thinking about. The swell that you get uh, in the midst of the sea And with the swell, uh, it goes in whichever direction the wind is blowing. The swell uh, is victim of the wind and its power. Uh, The waves are rootless. There's nothing to anchor those waves to the seabed to give them stability and consistency. That's the illustration that James is using. And one writer says of this illustration, he says, the thought seems to be that when we pray, we are not to oscillate between faith and unbelief, between trust and distrust, pleading, as it were, with boldness, but all the time thinking that it's really useless to ask. Some people pray like that, says James. They say they want something from him, but they don't expect he's going to answer. That's faith in two minds. Wavering between faith and unbelief. Someone who hopes to receive wisdom from God, but at the same time doubts whether he or she will obtain it. God will not hear that kind of prayer. James is quite firm on that. He says, you know, as it were, don't imagine that if you indulge yourself in that kind of doubting that God will give you anything. In fact, he goes further. Uh, He makes the point that it's not just that this person has got problems in the area of prayer it's that they are verse 8 unstable in all that they do it's not just prayer that's a symptom of this unbelief but all of their walk with God so the double-minded believer finds it impossible to put away uh, old sinful habits and make progress they profess to love the Lord Jesus but actually they love the world and the things of the world more They want to be led by the Spirit of God, but pragmatism and selfish interests more often guide their choices. Faith in two minds, double-mindedness. They don't think God is going to help them, and so they rely on their own resources. Well, I wonder if you're facing some kind of trial this morning. I shouldn't really ask that. 
I think we're probably all facing some kind of trial in one area of our life or another. Um, but if you're not sure what to do in those times of trial, three things I think this passage is teaching us. First of all, remember your need. Don't rely on your own uh, common sense. Remember your need. Admit it. It might be a blow to our pride to admit our native foolishness, but that's a start. If any of you lack wisdom, says James, remember your need. The second thing to do, pray. Ask God. He should ask God who gives generously uh, to all without finding fault. Remember your resource. It's a wonderful resource, a wonderful God to come before in prayer. Much encouragement to do so when you remember the character of the one with whom we have to do. And then thirdly and finally, remember to ask in faith. Believe that God will, God will do what he's promised. And so come to that ever open door uh, to the throne of grace on the grounds of the merits of Christ alone, on the basis of the blood that was shed for us on Calvary's cross. Come clothed in his righteousness, the righteousness of faith. Come confidently. Come humbly, reverently, dependently. And, says James, it will be given to you. It will be given to you. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for who you are this morning, a reminder of uh, the fact that you are the giving God, uh, so generous, uh, so different from ourselves. We pray that you help each one of us <clears throat> as we face uh, various situations in life that might cause us to doubt your love, uh, to count these things uh, as <clears throat> occasions in order to uh, grow in the grace that you supply. Help us to see these things as God appointed uh, to lead us onwards and forwards, for we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.